Chapter 62. When I open my eyes, the window is still open and the curtains are gently moving. It's still dark outside, but a new dawn is coming. Though the sun has not yet risen, it's already tinting the sky outside a faint shade of pink and orange. It's hard to believe that I slept through an entire day and night without budging. I pull off the quilt and see that I'm still fully dressed, lying alone in the big bed. I never even took off my shoes. I turn on the light on the bedstand just to make sure my eyes aren't playing tricks on me. No one else is there. No one has slipped into the bed with me. It's untouched except for the crater where I sank into a comatose sleep. She didn't show up, I mumble to myself over and over like a madman. Questions are boiling up in my head. Why didn't she come? What happened? How could she have missed our rendezvous? Did she change her mind at the last moment? Is she all right? There's a gentle knocking on the door. Come in, I say with great expectations. It's Martha, wearing her apron. She opens the door and carries in a breakfast tray loaded with coffee, breads, and fruits. Good morning, Luke, she says warmly. When I didn't see you yesterday, I was concerned. That's why I peeked in on you last night, saw you sleeping so peacefully I didn't want to disturb you. You must have been very tired. She didn't come, did she, I say. Who didn't come, says Martha hesitantly. You know who. Martha puts the breakfast tray down on the bedside table. Her benevolent face turns into a mask of dismay and apprehension. She can barely hold back her tears. Wordlessly, she stares into my confused eyes, not knowing what to say next. Her look tells me something very wrong. I suspected it from the moment I arrived, but I had totally blocked it out till now. There's no denying it anymore. I feel panic pumping through my veins. I thought you came to celebrate Luisa's birthday, Luke, Martha finally says, sitting on the edge of the bed. Luisa's birthday, I repeat? What birthday? Ten years ago today. It was her birthday, don't you remember? I can never forget that night. Her birthday, I mumble. The words, her birthday, snap my mind back from the fog of the last decade into the sharp sunlight of reality and truth. Almost simultaneously with my personal awakening, the sun emerges from the ocean outside, sending hot yellow rays through the windows of the jasmine room, bathing everything in warm sunlight. Now I see. Luisa is not coming. She's never coming. She never even intended to come. She didn't send me any note about us meeting again at Martha's Inn, right here in the same room where our love was first celebrated. Our ten-year reunion was a total fabrication of my own sick imagination. It was a story I made up on my own, in some dark corner of my confused head. What does that say about my troubled mind? It says that it has been playing cruel games with me for a decade. Martha, I don't know what to say. I'm so mixed up. What's happening to me? How can this be? I am unable to stop the unexpected tears coming down my cheeks. I cover my face with my hands to hide my emotional breakdown. My dear Luke, I'm so sorry, Martha says, putting her tender motherly hand on my shoulder. Luke, sometimes we get lost inside the labyrinth of our mind. Stay here with me for a couple days. Give yourself some time. Let your mind accept reality. What reality, I murmur to myself. I close my eyes and a whirlwind of dark questions whips through my brain. I feel nauseous. Why am I here? What really happened? Why can't I remember anything about that night ten years ago? What's blocking my mind? 
God, please help me to get some clarity. I'm going crazy with the confusion. I'm terrified of clarity as well. I realize that I've got to get out of here and breathe fresh air, clear my brain, find some answers. I tell Martha how much I appreciate her concern, but I need to take a walk and figure things out. As always, she's calm and understanding. Walk down to the lighthouse, she says on her way out. The lighthouse. Yes, that's where I need to go. I'm not sure why, but I need to see Montauk Point again. The premonitory on the coast past Martha's Inn, where there's a stately lighthouse. I don't know why, but that's where I need to go. I was there once before, but I can't remember when. I grab my jacket, rush downstairs, and leap off the porch like a hungry tiger, fire in my belly, leaving my car parked in front of the inn. The morning air is brisk and energizing. I start walking along Route 27 out toward the end of the peninsula. A few cars slow down, their drivers glancing curiously at me. Probably some locals up this early to go fishing. They're wondering why anyone would be strolling along the sandy trail along Montauk Highway at this hour of the day in a suit and white shirt. But respectful of each man's personal journey, they leave me in peace. I don't even notice them. I'm not even sure myself why I'm out here. But I know deep down that I've got to walk and walk and walk until I remember. Some idiotic surfer boys call out to me in shrill voices as their pickup truck passes by, but I don't even hear them. I'm listening to the seagulls above and trying hard with each step to go back ten years ago, in my mind, to what really happened that night. At first, all I remember is the rain and fog. The weather that night made Long Island roads hard to see, even harder to drive. This morning's bright sunlight does not leave any room for obfuscation. There's not a cloud in the blue sky to hide behind. Now I understand that inclement weather helped me bury an essential chunk of my life for all these years. I thought the end of this trip was Martha's Inn. But now I understand that my journey's end is the Montauk Lighthouse, built atop the cliffs of Turtle Hill in 1796 under President George Washington. Little things are starting to come back to me. I don't think I've been out here before. My strides are more confident because up ahead, above the trees on the side of the road, I can see the glass crown on the lighthouse looming above the coast. My footsteps are more assertive now with the lighthouse aiding my navigation, like it has to sailing ships, steamers, submarines, and fishing boats for over two centuries. I laugh out loud, a sort of insane cackle. Isn't it crazy that a lighthouse has kept me in the dark all these years? I'm walking but don't seem to be getting any closer to where I'm going, as if my mind isn't connected to my body. I've pushed my memories of that night so far down that I can't dredge them up. Isn't it ridiculous that I can remember obscure details of legal briefs and cases I argued years before, but can't remember that night ten years ago that shaped me into the human being I am now? Some internal GPS is guiding me now. I'm energized with a force and purpose I've rarely experienced in my lifetime. The smells of the ocean are drawing me towards its mysterious power. As I walk on, I allow my feet to take command, almost sleepwalking, my eyes open, yielding to wherever God is guiding me, no matter what truths I discover out here. The morning sea breeze is chilly. Suddenly I'm shivering, with goosebumps up and down my spine. 
I button up my jacket and pull the lapels around my neck. Yet something inside me wants to feel even more discomfort. I need pain. I need a powerful slap in the face and a strong kick in the ass to wake me up from this decade-old lethargy. March on. With each step, my mind starts to peel away layers of the mental bark that's hardened around my most intimate memories. Images start coming back. Just like the old-style developing trays where photographs magically appear on sheets of chemically treated white paper. I begin by remembering words, sights, feelings. I am starting to bring it all into focus, parse it out, make sense of it. Yes, that day was Luisa's birthday. That's it, of course. That's why it was such a special day for her. She had picked me up in her Corvette outside the courthouse that Friday afternoon. I had pleaded several cases that day as a court-appointed attorney for defendants who couldn't afford legal counsel. I remember now it was raining cats and dogs. We kissed and she wiped the raindrops off my forehead. We were delighted to be together, regardless of the bumper-to-bumper traffic. She wanted to go back to Martha's Inn at the end of Long Island despite the weather, to celebrate her birthday at the place where our love was born. I lifted her hand momentarily from the stick shift and kissed it passionately, wordlessly showing my acquiescence to her wish, deeply thankful for her love. I remember thinking what a lucky man I was. The drive that night was slow going because of the rain and all the traffic leaving the city. The smaller roads on Long Island were equally congested. Plus, the fog was rolling in from the ocean. We didn't mind because every moment we spent together was magical. We listened to classic rock and roll on the car radio and chatted about all kinds of subjects. Some serious, some silly. We started talking about romance, bouncing between medieval notions of chivalry and those magnificent paintings by Delacroix in the Louvre. Somehow arriving at one of my favorite books from childhood, The Last of the Mohicans by James Fenimore Cooper. Louisa had read it and loved it too. The conversation turned to cliches about men and women. We laughed about some of the more obvious irrational ideas that men have about women and women have about men. That one about women being more sentimental, honey? That happens to be true, she stated during one long traffic light. All the rest are bunk. Is that so, I asked playfully. Baby doll, let me tell you something, said Louisa, suddenly dead serious. Women need one thing and one thing only, and that's called love. We are alive when we love, and the more we are loved, the more love we need. That's why I want to go to Martha's Inn tonight, honey. I want to spend time with you in the Jasmine Room, our own private love shrine, and make sacrifices to the gods. I want to thank them for our love and ask them for their blessings for the future. Louisa paused for a long moment. Her tone had lost all playfulness. Her voice had become solemn. I looked at her. She gripped the steering wheel hard, and then she said the most amazing thing. I'm pregnant with our child. I remember looking at her as if lightning had just struck me. My tongue froze solid in my mouth, and I was speechless. My hair seemed to catch on fire and singed my brain. I wanted to scream out for joy or quote Shakespeare or jump off the top of a mountain. All I was capable of doing was kiss her bare arm and stroke her neck. Nothing else was said for a long time during the drive. We were both astounded by her announcement. Waves of warm emotions washed over me, but 
I decided to wait till I could find the right words to express my feelings about her momentous news. I'm honored, my love, I managed to say. I mean it with every atom in my body. When your inner and outer worlds meet, it's profound. It's marvelous. I've never been so happy. I gently placed my hand on her warm belly and closed my eyes, listening to the Corvette purr along and imagining our future together. I was in a state of inner peace. No wonder I closed my eyes and slipped off for a while. When I woke up, they were just outside Montauk. I turned to Louisa, and her eyes glistened with alarm. What's the matter, darling? There were no street lamps out here, and the fog had grown even thicker. A black SUV behind us had its bright lights on and was driving strangely close to Louisa's Corvette. Louisa was squinting from the piercing high-beam lights, so I twisted the rearview mirror upwards to give her some relief. What's going on? That SUV has been behind me for about ten minutes and just won't pass me even when I slow down. It's like the guy is getting his kicks by tailgating me. He's a real nuisance. Try again to let them overtake. Louisa slowed down the Corvette. The black SUV followed suit and stayed directly behind us, refusing to go around us, though there was no traffic coming the other way from Montauk Point. I rolled down my window, stuck my hand out above the roof, and rotated my finger, gesturing to the SUV to pass us. He ignored me and kept driving directly behind us. We would be arriving at Martha's bed and breakfast in another 200 feet. Don't slow down, I told Louisa. Wherever it is, I don't want them to know where we're going. Drive on past Martha's. Let's try to lose them. Luisa shrugged and jammed down on the gas pedal, gunning the Corvette's engine at the same time as she shifted down to the lower gear. The sports car zoomed ahead, tires screeching. The acceleration pressed my head back into the headrest. The SUV sped up behind us. Luisa raced down Route 27, curving right and left for the next mile through the rain and fog. We came to Montauk Point in the lighthouse. All along, I glimpsed the black SUV pursuing us in the rearview mirror on the passenger side. It's still there, she said, her voice trembling. Pull over, I said. I want to see who these people are. No, darling, I don't want to. Please, pull over. This is ridiculous. Who do these people think they are? Let's just drive, Luke. Back to Manhattan, please. I can lose them. Maybe they're criminals. Who knows what they want? Stop the car. This is ridiculous. Who the hell do these people think they are? Louisa masterfully drove the Corvette around Montauk Point, pulled over on the drive leading to the solitary lighthouse, spinning the sports car around so that we were facing the road. She kept her hands on the steering wheel and her foot on the gas pedal. Above us, the lighthouse's beam of flashing light circled through the foggy night. In a few moments, the black SUV appeared and stopped directly in front of the Corvette, seeking confrontation and blocking us off from the main road its bright headlights blinding us, its big engine idled powerfully. I jumped out and started screaming at the SUV as I moved toward it. Hey asshole, what the hell do you think you're doing? Get the hell out of that fucking SUV, you idiot. As I reached the driver's door, I knocked on the tinted glass. Hey, open up, asshole. No response. Then someone struck a lighter on the far side of the front seat. As the lighter moved toward the cigarette hanging out of a man's mouth, I suddenly recognized that unforgettable face. It was Igor Kravtsov, tractor, giving me a venomous look. Before I knew it, the driver slammed his door into me, knocking me to the ground. Then he gunned the SUV's engine. Luke, are you okay? I heard Luisa scream. 
I lifted myself up and screamed to her, Louisa, get out of here now! But her Corvette didn't move. The SUV suddenly bolted forward and struck the Corvette head-on, locking the sports car on its big steel bumper and pushing it backwards like a charging bull. It wasn't much of a match. I jumped up and ran after the two vehicles as they moved across the lighthouse grounds, bursting through a white picket fence. The SUV kept pushing the Corvette toward the edge of the bluff that the lighthouse stood upon. It all happened in a few seconds, but I saw it all in slow motion. The SUV thrust the sports car over the edge of the cliff and into the abyss below. I could hear Louisa screaming at the top of her lungs. When I reached the big SUV, it was idling calmly at the edge of the bluff, observing the chaos it had caused. The tractor lowered the passenger window and waved at me, as if to say we were even now. I rushed his side of the SUV, but the tinted window was already closed tight when I got there. I punched at the window and grabbed the door handle, but the goon who was driving the SUV threw the vehicle into reverse, spinning around and throwing me to the ground. The murderous SUV sped away into the night. I stumbled to the edge of the bluff. The Corvette lay upside down like an old rag tossed on the beach below. White smoke was coming out of its engine. I screamed in agony roaring like a thousand men, but my calls for help were drowned out by the waves breaking on the coastline. No one could hear me. Scrambling down the big rocks as best I could, I got down to the bottom of the bluff after stumbling a couple of times on slippery rocks. Blood was coming down the side of my head and both my legs were bruised, but the adrenaline pumping through my body made me forget my own pain. I got to the driver's side of the car reached in through the broken window and put my hand on Louisa's cheek. She was unconscious, but still breathing. Louisa, Louisa, my darling, I moaned. Stay with me, stay with me. The door on the driver's side was twisted and jammed shut. By using both my hands and leveraging my feet, I managed to get the passenger door open and reach inside the shattered Corvette with both arms. I dragged Louisa out on the beach. She was like a broken doll cradled her in my arms and felt for her pulse. Thank God she was still alive. Please help! Somebody please help! I screamed up at the solitary lighthouse as loud as I could. Help! Somebody help! I kept yelling until there was no more air in my lungs. The rain had weakened to a cold drizzle and the fog cleared. I made myself listen to any sounds of help arriving. There was an eerie silence blanketing the coast. Even the waves became motionless. We were on our own. I cupped Luisa's face in my hands, trying to shield her from the raindrops. When my hands touched her face, her eyes fluttered. Her faint breathing was painful, probably due to a punctured lung. Her clothes were soaked with blood. But the worst part was that her neck had been broken. Her shattered body was lying in my arms, paralyzed from the neck down and unresponsive. Yet by some miracle, she was able to move her lips ever so slightly and managed a faint smile. Louisa, my love, please stay with me, I murmured into her ear. I beg of you, please don't leave me, darling. Her bloody lips trembled. As gently as I could, I leaned over and kissed her. While I pressed my lips to her, she exhaled one last breath into my mouth and shuddered and was gone.
All these years, I had blotted out the painful memory of that drive to Montauk and Luis's Corvette. But my solitary walk today out to the tip of Long Island with the sun shining and the sea breeze tossing my hair around, it jump-started the process of remembering. All day long, I have sat in silent meditation at the top of the bluff under the lighthouse, putting it all back together. The rest of that fateful night has surfaced like a riptide rising from the bottom of the ocean, carrying me away with long, suppressed images. It's the first time since that night ten years ago that I've been back here, emotionally as well as geographically. By quietly focusing, I've finally been able to dredge up the painful scene of Louisa dying in my arms. The setting today is diametrically opposite from that rainy, foggy night. It's beautiful out here this afternoon, with families walking down the sun-dappled beach, children tagging along, and dogs running along the surf below the big red-and-white lighthouse tower. Lost in my past, I have hardly noticed the hours going by as the sun moves across the sky and descends into the west. The day has passed as effortlessly as one of those big fluffy clouds that drift by in the sky above the Atlantic. Evening is not far away because there's suddenly a chill in the air. I've been sitting here hour after hour, quietly staring down at the exact spot on the beach where I was holding her that night, going over and over what really happened. It has finally come back to me. I hugged her lifeless body in my arms that night, trying to hold off the coldness that would surely come now that her heart had stopped beating. My dream woman and her child were gone forever. I didn't want to ever let go of her. No, no, please, no. I kept moaning in a primeval voice that had never come out of my mouth before. A melange of sobbing and howling. I would have stayed there with her like that all night if I hadn't heard voices at the top of the bluff and seen flashlights up there. Some men dressed in overalls were calling out to me. A woman was giving orders. It was Martha from the inn, also dressed in overalls. She was a captain in the town's volunteer fire department. Somebody had heard the ruckus at the lighthouse and alerted the authorities. Police cars showed up along with an ambulance. The rest of that night is difficult to remember in any certain chronology. I can still see medics from a nearby hospital prying Luisa's body out of my arms and carrying her up the bluff on a stretcher. Somebody put a blanket over my shoulders and asked me to come along. Later, somebody else placed a mug of hot tea in my trembling hands. A man in uniform, maybe a sheriff or constable, asked me how the accident happened. I remember mumbling to him, what accident? This was murder, plain and simple. Somebody guided me to an ambulance that drove me to the local hospital. A medic laid me down on a stretcher in the back and gave me an injection. I remember a siren screaming in the foggy night, flashing lights, and nothing. I had dropped into some sort of drug-induced unconsciousness. Night is falling quickly on Montauk Point, and everyone has disappeared from the beach below. It now belongs to me and my souvenirs, so I climb down the rocks just like I did that night 10 years ago and sit down where I sat that night, where I held her for the last time. Alone now, I look out at the dark sea and its perpetual waves breaking on the shore. There is hardly a whisper of wind. The night sky is filled with millions of stars. Watching all this unfold is mesmerizing. 
My skin is tingling and I can feel my heart beating hard in my chest. It is one of the most powerful moments of my life, as if God is looking over me in all his dark beauty, and I am touching his mighty feet in this tiny patch of earth. I feel like I'm on the verge of facing my ultimate truth when God reveals himself and shows me my real purpose in life. Everything becomes so crystal clear. I reach into my pocket and take out the Panasonic voice recorder that Louisa gave me. Now I understand that I've spoken through the recorder to her for all these years. It's over now. I no longer feel the need to push the red record button. There's nothing left inside me to say. The poor device looks bedraggled, as if it's on its last leg, ready to give up the ghost the next time anyone tries using it. I build a little totem to my Panasonic by stacking up some smooth stones on the beach. The device has served me well, living with me all these years and listening to my soul-searching ad nauseum. But that's all over now. I love you, my dear recorder, but I will leave you here, I say to the worn-out Panasonic as I place it carefully on top of my memorial totem. We must part ways here. I stand up and face the ocean. My last soliloquy is addressed to the heavens. God, this is your humble servant, Luke Forsyth, the one who you've been avoiding all these years. You took my love away from me, and now you expect me to continue my life as if nothing happened? How can that be? I don't want to live anymore in this crazy world where you created so much misery and suffering. The buck stops here. Take off my jacket and lay it next to the totem. Make sure my wallet and cell phone are in the jacket so they'll be able to identify my body later. I continue. No answer, as usual. Being silent is not going to cut it this time. I've had it with you. I do all the talking, all the living, and all the suffering. All you do is observe. My decision has been made. I'm going to meet Louisa again. She's here. I can feel her. I want to be together with her forever. Intently, I listen for something, a sign, a hint, anything. But there is only the continuous sound of waves breaking upon the shore. I walk straight into the ocean and keep walking until the water is waist high. A wave comes up out of nowhere and slaps me across my face as if to tell me to turn around and go ashore. I laugh. I'm not afraid of anything anymore. The ocean is cold, but that's fine by me. I am completely at one with the world. I swim further away from the shore. I pause, treading water, look up at the beautiful star-filled night, and take my last deep breath. Then I pull my hands up and let myself sink down into the dark water. The deeper I go, the colder the water. My lungs are fighting for air. The end is near. I can feel it. Or is it the beginning of something grander? All I have to do is open my mouth and take one last gulp of the ocean. Except at that very moment, I hear Louisa's voice clear as a bell. No, my love, I'm alive in you. Stay, stay, stay. Then God's little finger causes a gigantic wave to grab me and push me up to the surface. Gratefully, I gasp for air. I float there, thankful to breathe, unsure of what to do next. Wave after wave is pushing me back toward the shore. 
Luisa's message is clear. I obey her, paddle back and walk upon the beach. As soon as I get out of the ocean, I start shivering. I find the totem, take off my wet shirt, put my jacket back on for some warmth, coughing up salt water. Without warning, I start crying, wailing like a wounded animal. The truth of this day has been too much truth for me to bear. I'm crying so hard that I can hardly breathe. And suddenly my cell phone rings. Really? Talk about terrible timing. This can't be real. I ignore the phone at first, but the ringing is insistent. Whoever it is calls me back again. I grab the cell phone from my coat pocket with trembling hands and look at the display. It reads home. Pick it up. Hello, Daddy? Julian? I'm still coughing up salt water. Daddy, where are you? Why are you coughing? I'm here, I say, gathering myself. I'm here, son. I have to try hard, but I do hold back the tears. I'm so happy to hear from you, son. Daddy, I'm just calling to remind you that my choir concert is on Friday. You're gonna come back in time, aren't you? Yes, of course, my son. I wouldn't miss it for anything in the world. Daddy, are you all right? Are you at the beach? I can hear waves in the background. Yes. Daddy's taking a walk on the beach. I'm great, especially now that you called. I will be there for your concert, I promise. You're the best daddy in the world. I love you. I love you too, Julian. I love you so much. I'll see you soon. I'll pass me your mom. Can't stop the salty tears that keep coming. I don't want to hold them back because they're tears of joy. It's uncontrollable and liberating. There's a silence on the line and some shuffling sounds. And then I hear Margaret's voice. Is that you, my dear, I say, my voice full of ancient sorrow and wisdom? Yes, honey, it's me. We miss you down here. I'm so glad you picked up the phone. We've been trying all day to reach you. I can hardly put words together. My tears won't stop. Darling, speak to me. Please, why are you crying? My dear, dear Margaret, I'm finally able to say, getting a grip. I don't deserve you. I really don't. Where are you, darling? At the accident site? Yes. I knew that's where you were going. You had to go back there, didn't you? Yes, I managed to say. But now it's done and I'm coming home. It's over. We're both crying together now. Come home, Luke. I love you, my darling Margaret. We're waiting for you. The school concert was just starting when we arrived. Inside the auditorium, we find two seats in the back among all the parents and relatives of the little boys standing so tall and perfect on the stage in their blue choir robes. The celestial voices of Julian and all the other boys singing Handel are enthralling. Julian sees us come in and a beautiful smile takes over his angelic face. I squeeze Margaret's hand. I only just flew in a few hours before and I haven't had yet time to talk to Margaret about my trip to Montauk. I left my car with Martha to use as she sees fit. It was at the end of its tether after my East Coast drive. She took me to the airport and hugged me goodbye. There's so much I need to tell my wife. Your palm is sweating, she whispers. You okay? Yes. Just happy to be here with you. I stare at Margaret's beautiful hand resting on mine. Close my eyes. I hear the beautiful choir music and feel the weight of her hand. 
This is real, I think to myself. My wife's hand is holding mine. She's shown herself to be such a courageous woman. She knew I had to make that journey to remember my past, and she let me go deal with it on my own terms. Her quiet love and support were there every mile of that trip. Yet I was scared, unsure, and confused. I am so sorry to have caused her pain and anxiety. I squeeze Margaret's hand and we exchange a knowing glance. Everything is the way it was before I left for Montauk, and that's the way I want it. I am home in the most complete sense of the word. I'm a better man for having made that journey, but nagging thoughts still keep coming up. Was it all only a dream? With my other hand, I reach into my pocket, take out the bruised Panasonic voice recorder and squeeze it appreciatively. Maybe the answer is in there. The end.